Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about improv DMing, the idea of yes and and yes but or no and or no but. Today we're talking to Jalen Eitenair. Hey Jalen, how's it going? Not bad. Uh, so tell us a bit about yourself, how long you've been gaming, how long you've been DMing, all that kind of stuff. Oh boy, uh, gaming for over two decades, specifically kind of tabletop stuff. Uh, longer than that if we get into like video games. I will not say how old I am. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, I've been DMing now for about actually five years. Like I can count now. I just started a while ago. I played, I preferred playing tabletop games versus running them to a degree. And yeah, and then my First game played was Vampire the Masquerade. Far too young to be playing that game at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pretty common story with Vampire the Masquerade. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's like, ooh, vampires, and then you get the rule book, and you're like, ooh, vampires. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started. What's the main difference between yes and and yes but? So Besides the fact that buts are funny. But, 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 but. <laughs> so yes and actually me encourages the player to like think beyond that so yeah yeah you can do that and what else would you like to do or a yes and if the role is already done is a yes you succeeded and then this happens because of a triggering of the effect so it can either encourage your players to think things more thoroughly through or it can push something past it where more big success depending on how you're trying to run your story uh, yes but is generally used on the side of the dm to go like yeah i'd succeed but success might not be the same way it's the same thought of the monkey paw, kind of wing teeth. Yeah, you get your wish. Might not be what you want by it, though. Um, my favorite example to go to is always actually, I think I even talked about it before, where it's like the casting um, speak with the dead on a skull. I thoroughly think my players should be allowed to do that. But one of the butts would be like, yeah, but it has no tongue or voice box or a bunch of things. So you might get the experience where the teeth just start chattering. Do you know Morse code? Can you understand what they're saying? <laughs> Or maybe you see a little spirit in there, kind of like Bob from the Dresden Files, where it starts talking and the mouth is moving, but it's like, now it won't go away. Congratulations, <laughs> it's a little tiny spirit in the skull. I, I like that idea that like you kind of speak with the dead and like it succeeds, but now they've got this thing that just won't shut up. And like the spell ends and it's still there. It's like, well, what do we do now? It's like, oh, now you've gotten this spirit's attention. It's just going to follow you forever now. <laughs> right? It can throw a great monkey wrench in. It's like, you've succeeded. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and with the yes and i feel like that one is probably a little bit tricky for new dms because i know it's something that i experience where somebody succeeds and i feel it's with games like D D, where it's a lot more mechanical like mechanical where there's all these rules and systems laid out versus games like storytelling games like edge of the empire and stuff like that where you kind of always have to be on your toes because like in Edge of the Empire, like you can succeed, succeed with advantage. You can succeed and have like a minor bad thing happen. So you have to be a little bit more on your toes for, okay, you succeed, but also this happens. And the game kind of helps out because it has some a whole bunch of examples of what can happen. But in a game like D&D, where it's really just you hit it or you succeeded your skill check, what kind of stuff would you be doing to say like, yes, and like you, you did the thing, but also like you succeed, like you rolled a 20. So also maybe this happens or you barely succeeded. So this happens. 
kind of stuff. Well, one example can be actually with rogues, and I always want to go with that because I love playing rogues. If you're doing a lockpick on something and say you haven't checked for traps yet, or check to see if the door is trapped before you open it, you're just unlocking it first before checking. Maybe you roll a nat 20. Well, it's like you hear click, and then all of a sudden you just like realize there was a secondary click at that moment. Maybe you wouldn't have heard that if you rolled beneath the crit 20. And it's like, oh, so it clicked twice. What could that actually be, maybe? And then it's like, when you do a check for traps, you realize that that second click was that little push extra to do that without needing a trap check. Okay. So it's able sometimes. An option to do is, yeah, toss one skill check in with another. Or a charisma check might be that you succeed with flair, and not only are these people actually listening to you and respecting you, they're now going to you with other questions and continuing your story and helping you further because you've been so charismatic. Right. So you're, like, talking to the guard, and you manage to win him over just enough so that not only does he tell you where the thing is, like, he gives you a hint about where the keys might be found. Exactly. You don't just convince the person you actively impress them. Yeah. Precisely. All right. So why do you feel that this style of DMing is important? For me, it's important to add to the players on the fly to adapt to them to go. It's also important for your description to add to the story to being able to actually encourage it to go further. So I'm trying to think of all the stuff here with this because it's so big for me. It's... It creates a large scope of everything tied together. What you do then matters as well. It becomes this epic thing that you've done this, succeeded so well that you now have this impressive NPC guard friend that, you know, you can go to maybe later and he's now a named NPC that you can talk to and maybe he wasn't before. Or in the case of a yes, but yeah, now you have that possessed skull that's in your possession and maybe they'll change the scope of the story later and suddenly you've adapted and brought it back around. If your players are the kind of players that I generally end up playing with, a part of, or having, and probably a lot of DMs of these kind, they'll get off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know a single DM whose players haven't yet. But a yes and a yes but could also bring them back around without railroading. Okay. It gives them also a little bit of a lead without pushing them. Okay, so you use their success as uh, an opportunity to kind of pull them back into the story without forcing them back. Okay, I like that. So for new DMs who haven't tried to play with this kind of improv style of DMing, do you have any quick tips or even exercises that they can do to get the hang of it. Get into improv. If you haven't yet, try out the improv encyclopedia and look at it. There's a large amount of resources out there. That's actually one I just mentioned is improv encyclopedia. It's great ones. Uh, look for the social games especially and ones you can play with your players. It's actually a recommendation at session zero. Maybe try one of those out. Only questions, gibberish behavior, things like that that are actually good. Only questions, by the way, is one where you have to when you ask a question, you ask a question, you ask a question. There can be no statements. The only responses are in questions or encouragement. And you cannot repeat them. And the question can't be just like what or why or where. It's got to be a full question. Uh, the gibberish one is where someone speaks gibberish. Think Beaker in the Muppets. And someone translates it. And it becomes a really great moment. I mean, me and a friend used to do it where I would do the Beaker voice. And I would do this long-winded Beaker speech. And she'd narrow it down to five words. <laughs> And you just want to look at the person and be like, well, that's not what I said, but you can't. <laughs> so you have to like get angry in beaker speech. <laughs> what about stuff like fiasco or somewhat more regimented kind of improv games? Once Upon a Time is great. Mm -hmm. It's a fairytale style collaborative game where you actually interrupt people and you play a card to tell a story together. Any of those kind of ones that do that, I also approve of for this kind of stuff. Love it. If you're going to have to tell a collaborative story anyways for a game, may as well practice with it to work with your DM, for your DMing and D&D. Because 
was D&D or tabletop games, but a collaborative story. Yeah, something we touched on in a previous episode was using the the fate style of when you're creating your party, you, you write down that like, if I'm creating a character, I write down that like, yeah, my rogue was involved in a, a heist two years ago, and that's why he's on the run. And then you have to turn to a player and say, now, how are you involved in that? And getting people involved and kind of getting those storytelling muscles going. I feel like that's probably my experience. That's the trickier part of doing the improv stuff is getting your players involved, especially if they don't have a theater or an improv background, because I feel like most players probably come to the table expecting the DM to be this grand storyteller <laughs> and they're really just there for their character. But the DM can only be as good as everybody at the table. And I think that's probably what's tr- like scary for new DMs is how do I get this person that I know is shy to like come out of their shell and do this stuff? And it could be just encouraging to think of that and part. Uh, in the first run of Fawn's Heart, we actually had someone too that was very shy and played a rogue, but we kind of just do this and then nothing else. Just because she was very shy of actually being on the podcast in general and playing the character. She was new to D&D. And it was just like, well, think of what your rogue would do. Like, put yourself in their shoes instead. Step out of your own. This is someone who's this person. Even if all they do is lean against the wall, you describe leaning against that wall to the point that she nearly fell through a tent. (laughs) (laughs) But you get into the habit of embodiment and reward that behavior. When your character, when your player does something for their character, reward that. Inspiration, hero points. They find a treasure because they fell through the tent. (laughs) Like, reward those interactions, whether in-game or as a mechanic. Another quick thing to say about Once Upon a Time, it's a great way to, it's a great exercise in figuring out how to get a story back on track if it's gone wildly off the rails. <laughs> I love that game. Yeah, it's, it's also a friendship breaker in our circle. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> uh, for DMs that maybe don't have games to play with people, by the way, streams of consciousness are great for that kind of stuff too for yourself. Start writing, take a path somewhere, and then go back to a choice and take a new path. I played Fiasco a little while ago, and while I was playing it, I'm like, this could be a good exercise to just, as a DM, just do this. Play this by yourself and, like, imagine some other people. And as a DM, it probably would help a little bit, too, if you're doing it by yourself, because it gets you into the habit of quickly switching characters. Yeah. Which... This character is related to this character by this thing, and this thing, and then this thing happens, and then, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, playing Fiasco by myself, I think, would give me a migraine. <laughs> <laughs> So what are some advantages to doing this this improv style, both as a DM and for just as a player or for the players at your table? Uh, for as a DM, for me, it's the ability to adapt. I'm very much an improv DM. I prep a base story for a campaign, like here's the plot points to hit, and then I use a lot of random generators. I fully admit that I love the random generators for names and encounters and such and get ideas from that. But if you have players that are going to have something go wildly off the rails, which they're going to do, gives you a chance to think on your feet, pull information out of them, or toss a monkey wrench their way and bring it around to their hut, what the story you want to tell is, or to get them more engaged in it. So adapting to your plays to me is always a big one, because otherwise you're just not going to have a lot of fun with it. If it's like, you're only going to be able to do this, and only this, and you can't go beyond this line. It's like, I'm going to go explore over here. Give me five minutes to go check a book. You like sitting at a table where your DM goes and shuffles through a whole bunch of things because you've gone off the rails or want to go, you know what? Yes, you can go over there. And this is what's going to happen if you do roll this. Oh, you've discovered this now instead. I think as like devil's advocate, the one thing that I would think of is the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, when you've prepped a bunch of stuff for like, you know, the players were, they came to a city because they're finishing off a quest by, I don't know, escorting a merchant caravan or something like this was the end goal of their quest and then they get there and you kind of expect them to like follow a bunch of hooks that had been laid out on the trail and they were excited about and then they get there they drop off the guy and they're like cool let's go back to that place we saw and for i guess just for some people like coming up it's not so much the idea of just like narrating the like yeah you, 
you go there it's just figuring out like stuff like encounters mm-hmm. and on the fly npcs and stuff like that how do you deal with that kind of stuff where like all of a sudden they come to a point where like okay there needs to be an encounter here and i don't have any stats ready um how do you deal with that kind of stuff when you're doing the improv whatchamacallits <laughs> <laughs> uh when you're doing that kind of stuff what i find to do is just like if it's gonna be that encounter that you want them to do and they missed just kind of put a pin in that and maybe they did something that led to it I don't, okay, I feel fine talking about the font art stuff because this is stuff we're going to have to redo with the old stuff. But in the previous iteration of it, uh, a carnival caravan, by the way, that goes between towns every week. So new encounters and sometimes just be like, oh, we're not going to do anything in this town. Okay, sure. That's your choice. The one town they went, they shopped at a pet store (laughs) for familiars and just general pets. Someone bought a dog, someone bought a cat. They forgot about the cat. <laughs> the cat was still with the caravan weeks later. And they had put some things together, left the town alone, didn't do anything further. No other counters. Okay. We come across the cat weeks later. The cat can talk. No <laughs> one realized this. The thief and the ranger met the cat in the dark one night. The cat freaked out at them. Went running off. One goes to find the paladin. Oh yeah, no, this is a great time. I love that this ended up happening. Like, we're talking adaption at its finest with improv. Because I just like, okay, sure, you guys don't have to do a thing I did here. I was going to put a pin in this. I'm going to remember it when it's going to be opportunistic. But chasing after the cat, one person went to get the paladin, called the cat a puma, said it was huge. This is a house cat. They corner it. Nothing happens. No one can see it. Okay, fine, whatever. Paladin walks away. The ranger and the rogue are just like, well, damn it. The cat finally gets out. As it goes off away, it, I ask, okay, roll perception. They do. They both make their thing. I'm like, you hear asshole coming from the way the cat went. They're just like, did that really happen? What? <laughs> and so for the next little while, they had no idea. They were convinced something weird was in the dark. They meet the cat again. One person doesn't recognize it. The other person thinks they do. Gets it up a tree, pulls something like that, up a tent. The paladin is called again. The paladin looks up at it. The person's like, that was a cat from last time. That is not a puma. It's still not a puma. Gets the cat down. The cat mutters again, asshole. This time the paladin hears it. (laughs) Longest running joke we've had, all because they didn't play that first encounter with it. They could solve that in a week in that town. They're now stuck with a talking cat. So there's stuff stuff like that where you take uh, an encounter that they skipped by accident or on purpose and bring it back later like either it's something that it's an npc that they just run into again at some point or it's a bad guy that was waiting for them and is now tracking them down or something but how do you do the the flip side of like they've gotten into a situation where they've managed to piss somebody off and it's like a gang or something where you're just like oh damn there needs to be a combat here if you need to be a combat here if you have any i usually have some index cards prepped that are just like random grab kind of ones like I said, I do do some minor prep. And that because then it was like a random encounter. It's like, okay, let me just go from my shuffle pile. Because good luck, you guys. You've done something random. You don't know what strength this will be. <laughs> and they actually might be other challenge rating. It might be that. Or you can use... So there's one side of it where if they're facing a big bad and they suddenly take down the big bad, you never expected it. You just make a new big bad, right? That was a big bad's minion. On the flip side of it, if you're in for an encounter that it doesn't look like there should have been in or something, and you really don't have stats or anything on hand, which happens, make it something that looks impossible to deal with for them. Have it be people where it's like, this will be a story moment to remember. You guys can try to deal with this. Y'all are probably going to fail. So it's like, yeah, you pissed off a gang and now all 70 of them are here. It's like, insight. Oh yeah, there was a five people you cornered. Rogue, do a perception check. Check the rooftops. Oh, oh, back away slowly. (laughs) There are also some tools online where you can just generate encounters and 
you know, be like, I want this monster at least generate the rest of it for me. Cobalt Fight Club. Yeah, I guess I was just wondering about the the idea of like not having to go away for five minutes and like the idea of having the the, rent, the cards pre-prepped so you can just quickly pull something out. Like I, I've got NPC cards for Edge of the Empire for that specific reason where like, because I was running Edge of the Empire is very much an improv thing. Like I, <laughs> I would plan like a story beat and that was it for a session and just play off the players, which works a lot better, I feel, in Edge of the Empire because of the way the roles, the mechanics work. Um, and having those cards certainly help. Mm-hmm. But in a game like D&D, where you have to be a little bit more aware of like challenge ratings and like not throwing too much stuff at them or all kinds of stuff, I just was curious how you would handle that. Yeah, so on, on the flip side, though, what are some disadvantages from using ES and specifically when it's something that might derail the game just completely. Oh, one of the major disadvantages can be players abusing the idea of it. If they're going to go yes and... It's kind of like the bag of holding thing. Yes, and I pull this out of my bag of holding. Yes, and I had this just to happen to sit in my pocket. I'm going to try this, and I have this kind of thing to go on with it. Like, yeah, I'm going to shoot this person with my crossbow, and I get all these bonuses because of this stuff with it, and they're this far away, so I can hit them with this, and I'm going to use this spell to go with it, and I have this scroll on hand. It'll give me this invisibility, and it's like, yeah, but I'm going to let you roll on all this stuff because you can't get through that. And the beautiful thing of a DM screen is that you never have to tell them whether you succeeded or failed. (laughs) Always use a DM screen. New DMs, always use a DM screen. Because then you can make them pass when you want them to pass or fail when you want them to fail. And all you have to do is make the sound of a dice roll. (laughs) You can clip stuff to it. More table space. (laughs) If you want to, make your own with a whiteboard. It's fantastic. I think another thing probably is just be ready to say no though because like this is one of the things with i keep coming back to the edge <laughs> of the empire is that there's a system where there's a couple of they're called force force points and they've got a light side and a dark side because it's star wars and the players can flip over a light side one to they can use it to upgrade their role but they can also use it to just say yeah i've got a key for this door or uh, you know i've got a friend in this town that can tell us what we need to know and it says in the book be ready to say no if your players if the players just go yeah i've got keys to this ship <laughs> like they're they're <laughs> The players are always, like, I feel this is the one thing, is that players, even if they're the best players in the world, they're always going to be pushing the boundaries of just, what can I get away with? Can can I just say that I've got this thing or that I just succeed? And I think as DMs, even when you're doing this improv style, you have to be ready to just say, like, no, that is outside the realms of possibility. That would take a roll of 30 on a 20-sided die. I mean, like I said, I'm not... No, but that'd be like a yes but to me or the kind of thing like that comes also down to a weird sort of design idea. Uh, This might be in a game's mindset, but you know you ever play those games where it's like you go to open the door and says this door is locked. You cannot get through. It is barred. And you look up in the screen like you pan the camera out. The door's half broken off its hinges. It's clear cut blasted (laughs) off. There's a hole through the wall right beside it that you can't tell and go through because of an invisible barrier. The game tells you no, you can't do this. One of my my favorite Uh, things that I've read online was a post from uh, Seamus Young on 20-sided where he's talking about Neverwinter, the, the, the video game, where in the first one where you come to a door that's locked, like it's it's the gates to the city and it's based on a D&D game. So you think like, oh, like I can go find some rope and climb over the wall or go through the sewers or do all this other stuff. But it's like he's using it to highlight just bad quest design of like to get through this door, you have to go out of the city and do like two other major quests before you can come back and get through the door. And it's just like, that is a very specific level of locked. <laughs> like that you can't just... Players are going to figure out ways to get around things. And yeah. 
yeah, just having being ready to say like, yes, but if you just bypass the city guard, you're caught inside. Mm. Yeah, like be prepared for that. If you happen to have the keys, if you have the keys to this vehicle, you can have the keys to this vehicle. Guess what? It doesn't start the engine. <laughs> You've now busted into this vehicle. You are trapped inside this vehicle. You didn't have the ignition starter key. You have no starter. Can you think you can hotwire a spaceship? Because <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you have the car. You have the keys to the spaceship. You open it up and realize that the batteries are dead. I guess the only thing that I'd be because uh, I've run into this a few times where I've done something that I've used the yes but and somehow it just feels slightly more disappointing than just saying no sometimes because it's that little moment of like you get their hopes up and then you crush them instead of just crushing them straight away <laughs> I don't know I have fun with the getting their hopes up part <laughs> <laughs> It can depend on the yes but situation too, because sometimes yeah. it's like I want to swing from the chandelier and like drop on this guy, and you're like yes, but you're gonna take some falling damage, or you're gonna to have to make some rolls to see if you can like pull it off. Yeah, because it's almost more funny if they fail and land next to the guy, <laughs> <laughs> and then the chandelier lands on the guy. Maybe how heavy were you? What's the weight limit of a chandelier? Let's test this stuff. How do you help train players to participate in this style of a more improvisational gaming without abusing it a lot? <laughs> and, you know, just getting them used to how it works if they're used to a more kind of like rigid DM player interaction. <laughs> they're used to a more board game style of playing rather than Fair. tabletop gaming. Uh, right from session one, start encouraging them. Like if we have someone going, I'm going to strike this person with my axe. Okay, where are you hoping to hit? Just... Start doing lead questions with them. It starts getting them thinking on that kind of stuff. Like, did you know if you try and hit the arm, it might be a disadvantage, but you're close in a range that you could probably aim for the gut and get a good swipe across the stomach, and that might be easier. There's always going to be the AC you can't really combat in D&D. But have fun with it. Nothing's ever set in stone. It's actually one of the rules in the D&D book, and I think every tabletop game should follow this. The GM makes the rules at the end of the day kind of thing. It's always about having fun at the table and telling that kind of thing. So for your players, ease them in. Start with the leading questions. Start laying some of the groundwork for a but situation with them. And be gentle in the beginning with it. Because some of those, yes, buts can become kind of harsh. Yeah, you can climb up that cliff face with no rope and just hanging by your fingertips. But if you fall, that will be your death is kind of a hard one to start off with. Maybe go with, yeah, you can try and sweet talk that guard into giving you the keys. But if you do manage to get that, you might have to explain to the next person how you got those keys. And it could just start a domino effect. Yeah. One thing that I've run into trying to get into the habit of the yes ending is going almost a little bit too far trying to lead them. Like, because as a DM... You know, I've been setting up encounters and scenarios and stuff like this. And I've already thought of like 20 different ways that they could do something. So when I see the players trying like just the most straightforward, basic way to do something, like you can also do this and this and this. And I'm going <laughs> to shut up now before I tell you all of the ways I figured out how you could that, figure this out. And I feel like that's probably a trap that some DMs could fall into. And But yeah, like I, I definitely agree that getting the hang of leading your players into think, like opening up their thinking is good tactic. I think one of my favorite examples of this is actually on Fracturia. The first place I saw it is when, when the DM is just like, okay, how do you kill them? Or you crit, what happens? That's just a great way to kind of pull the players in and get used to it. And because combat happens usually really often, it's kind of a really good like training to get them used to it. Yeah, I did the, the Matt, Matt Mercer thing of whenever somebody gets the final hit on the big boss of an encounter, that player gets to describe how they killed it. It's led to some pretty interesting moments of 
like the the barbarian or the like three axe fighter doing some just insanely bloody crazy things but it helped get them into that idea of just storytelling and like narrating what their character is doing and not just yeah i hit it and it died cool did you say three axe fighter yeah (laughs) well that sounds like something okay we need to meet our monk (laughs) we have the beautiful descriptor of some point of the monk putting her fist through a dire reindeer's skull (laughs) but yeah it's as you say, like, that's an easy way to lead in. Start describing how you've actually killed the monster. And I think over time, we've even started doing it where we just start describing our hits in general because that lead in. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that as well where the players, like, after a few sessions, they started to be a little bit more descriptive. And, like, one of the things that I liked is that the this axe fighter, like, one of the first things that he usually does in combat is he uses his three attacks to throw three throwing axes and he'll like every like if he misses or if they hit he'll grab the marker and like mark down on the map like okay one probably landed here one probably landed over here and sometimes i'll like override and be like no you like got a critical one that's like behind you (laughs) (laughs) you threw it backwards over your shoulder as you wound up (laughs) yeah yeah and actually that brings up a, a something that i'm interested in with this this improv style of gaming is that some of the things that i've seen with critical fails is that some people particularly it feels like people who come from older editions where a one was a critical failure no matter what whereas in fifth edition it's just it's not a critical fail it's just a failure where some people feel that on a credit on a one like something bad should happen and some people disagree with it because it means that you know a 20th level fighter who gets four attacks has a super high chance of accidentally stabbing himself in the foot at level 20. So when you're doing the this improv stuff and there's a situation they've gotten themselves into and they need to get through a locked door or particularly if there's some kind of like time crunch, they need to do something before a guard comes or, you know, mm-hmm. the dragon comes or whatever. How do you deal with that kind of tension in a scenario while also trying to do all this improv of yes and so that they can't just immediately get out of this situation? Well, with that kind of thing, it's, it's still a question about roles, right? So the rogue could say, sit down, and they're lockpicking, and people have to be on guard. So you have to check on that kind of stuff, like, hey, who is actually watching this? What are they doing in this situation? Where would you put yourselves? Rogue is in lockpicking. Do all your roles. Perception, uh, sleight of hand. Yeah, that still exists in 5e. I'm just remembering lockpicking doesn't. And all those kind of ones together. And how you actually can deal with the tension, the suspense of that situation. Is have them all roll, and then start going through, as you know, describe footsteps and things like that. The people are percepting, but the rogue may not hear that because they're really intense on that depending on how well they roll. Depends on maybe how far that way they hear them. And it may or may not be actually serious. It may be something they're hearing in themselves. If the failure happens, such as a crit one, I'm someone those DMs, an old school person, where it's pretty bad, but it's not going to be a fatal bad. It should never feel that way to me. It can create some great funny moments. Slight tangent off, but I always hate when it's done in a situation where it's like, it's going to ruin the whole game. It should be a great character building moment, great fun time maybe, great story for later that you succeeded in spite of the odds of the failure, but at the end of the day, it's still trying to empower people in a way so they can have fun like this is a fantasy world Mm. you're trying to make a character that is impressive as hell pardon my french (laughs) so let's say the rogue's going through this everyone else succeeds but the rogue fails at picking the lock and if you've played level 20 rogue you actually have to roll a one to really fail if you got the right (laughs) skills picking the lock Uh, at that time maybe what the you could describe where the rogue hears a little clunk instead of a click the pin that they're using breaks and just pull it out and it's just a jab of pin and it's okay Check inside first off, and now try, you have to wait a little bit while you dig through pins, now try again. It might be getting closer, the time crunch is still there, you can still hear the footsteps, 
but try again. It just means now you're gonna have to get that lock pick replaced <laughs> at the next time you go to. You might have to take a disadvantage at your rolls if you're gonna use that full set again. Maybe your bonuses, you get one less. What is it? You can get up to two proficiency bonuses plus a whole bunch of other stuff as a rogue and all this gets ridiculous. I was like, oh, you can only add your proficiency once. Expertise no longer is allowed because you broke your lock pick. You know, deal with an aftermath later, but in that really heart pounding moment and whatnot, make them feel like they got away with it. If they're gonna fail, but you need to time it out and you want them to succeed anyways, give them that moment of, ah, one more time, one more time, one more time, one more time. I guess the extension of that then it was like, what happens if they fail a second time? Like, at what point do you stop going, okay, you stop hearing footsteps and now the guard rounds the corner? Probably that second fail. Okay. Probably that second fail would then be a combat encounter or they have to try and sweet talk the guard, or they have to try and knock them out. Hopefully they put someone in place to watch that can be scouting far enough back that the guard won't notice everybody else. And who knows, maybe just their one friend gets captured. They get out, but they have to go back and rescue them. There's a whole bunch of things you can do with that then in a failed situation. Maybe lose a party member. Maybe they all have to fight. Maybe they don't even get a chance to. Maybe they have to bust out that acid they bought five levels back, conspicuously get through the door, <laughs> but then there are going to be people following them for sure. Yeah, you're going to leave a trail. There's not going to be a nice and easy way to get out of this. Maybe it's time for the fighter to take a chance at that lock and uh, just bust through the door. <laughs> As long as they're not in dwarven ruins and it's a stone door. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's plausible within the world. I actually had players oh. try to bust through a, a stone, like a seven foot thick stone wall at one point because they were just freaked out and they had been separated. And <laughs> the barbarian is like, I need to get to my friends, but there's a gas cloud. I'm going to go through the, the wall. And he, he actually crit like three times in a, in a row. I'm like, cool, you've knocked off like two inches of this wall. Yeah, exactly. It's like you still succeed at something that is very impressive to do. It's not going to get you through the wall. Yeah. Or you could do like a rogues from, being, uh, from the beginning of time have been doing and go, hey, Mr. Fighter, after you. <laughs> go ahead and check that door for traps. I'm just going to sit back here and save my health. All right, Jalen. Uh, mm-hmm. I think last question. What's something you wish you could tell yourself back when you started DMing about using this improv style? Like kind of the most important thing you've learned. Uh, that, let's see, what would I tell myself? Don't freak out. You know more than you think you know. The players are going to love it anyways. (laughs) Actually, I've had so many people now tell me they like doing it and whatnot. We're running a module game right now because I just have no time to build a new campaign. So I'm running a module. Still adapting to it at this because they go off the rails. Still having fun. And that's what matters at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's something that I think a lot of DMs, especially like I've run into this. So just like the first few sessions, I was always just like, was that everybody have fun? Was this good? Like, is there anything you want me to change? And people are like, no, you're doing a good job. And I think as long as you're not actively antagonizing your players, they're going to enjoy it. Either they will tell you or just stop showing up. <laughs> but for the most part, they're probably just going to have fun. Yeah, like definitely take feedback. Ask your players for more feedback on what they'd want to see, what they want to try, how to get their players more engaged and involved. And when it comes to yes and yes but, ask them which ones they liked about it. If you had them get a successful something with a monkey's paw promise, ask them if they actually enjoyed that. Get their feedback always on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Thanks yeah. so much for coming, Jalen. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me. My Twitter is CrazyJ. I should probably spell it out because it's I spell it really weird to get the handle. It's C-R-A-Z-E-E and J-A-Y. Feel free to follow me on there if you like me. Uh, I'm also on 020.com, which we've talked about Fractoria and Fawn's Heart here tonight at some of our shows. And yeah, it's about the two main places to follow them. Find me. Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming out. This is a blast. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Our logo and other artwork is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DMs of Vancouver, all one word. We'd love to hear from you folks about topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Lastly, if you want to help us out, we've got a Patreon account where you can become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Each little bit helps, and all the money will go to making this podcast as awesome as possible. See you next time, folks. Roll for initiative!